I believe, first of all, the scenario planning is something that any organization should be accustomed to doing. Uh, I think that's part of your regular practice. But the second thing is that we have to also be looking ahead and seeing what we can learn from this that applies down the road. I mean, if you look, for example, at how East Asia has handled uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the reasons they're doing relatively well is because they already had to handle SARS and they had a lot of lessons learned. Same with, same with Canada. I'm optimistic that uh, this crisis could see uh, a bigger embrace of science worldwide. This may be bad news for Gwyneth Paltrow. This may be bad news for uh, Alex Jones. And it may be good news for um, people paying attention to biology, health sciences, uh, and evidence. I hope this leads to an improved Call it a strategic sensibility on campuses, uh, a greater awareness of future possibility, and uh, greater agility. Welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Education. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Howard Tybal. Hello, Howard. Hey, Pete. How are you today? Well, uh, we are, we're <laughs> doing question. our best. That's yes. right. Uh, we are in, uh, I'm, I am now a homeschool teacher, which is uh, exciting change, unpredicted yeah. uh, change. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to say this is a new chapter. Uh, and we are all exploring this together, which is uh, uh, at least maybe one silver lining. We are truly all in this together. I was so, thinking that for those who have been uh, homeschooling for years now, this is like, yeah. all right. Welcome to Monday. Keep, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> this week on Navigating Change, we're thrilled to have uh, an old friend of the show, writer, speaker, and teacher, Brian Alexander, is back with us for his third appearance on This Fair Show. Uh, we're going to have a conversation on the data we're seeing play out in real time as the higher education sector confronts COVID-19. Today, however, we're going to attempt to make sense of it through the lens of scenario planning. And most importantly, providing a framework for how your institutions are approaching continuity of academic operations. Brian Alexander, welcome back to Navigating Change. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. You broke Google, Brian. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. You, congratulations. This is that is an auspicious honor in these times. I think so. I think so. It's a career achievement. <laughs> and, yeah. So, Brian, why don't you give us just a, a little background of what that means. Many people might not even be aware of what you put together from a crowdsourcing standpoint and, and what that produced. Sure. Um, to give a little background, I'm a futurist specializing in higher education, and I believe strongly in having lots of evidence in my futurist work. So when the COVID-19 pandemic started to reach the United States and started to close universities in a few different countries, including the U.S., I wanted to aggregate information about it. I couldn't find anybody who was doing it, so I quickly opened a Google Sheet and started just putting four basic columns of you know institution name, what they were doing, miscellaneous notes, and evidence about what they were doing. You know, a link to a news story or official announcement, and then I put it out there for the world to play with. And I thought this is pretty nerdy, detail-oriented stuff. I don't think anyone's going to get excited. Everyone got excited. It just blew up. Mm -hmm. People started adding school after school, campus after campus, more and more information. People added more data columns. It went from four to 14 and now to 18 columns. One excellent outfit, a group of people from um, Ithaca SNR in New York added uh, iPads data. They built a map out of it. Other people built more maps out of it. And it just really took off. It got media attention from 
Al Jazeera, USA Today, NPR. And eventually, it reached the limit of what Google will allow you to edit. So it basically froze up and people couldn't edit it. I couldn't edit it. We reached the limits of Google's tolerance. Um, At one point, I managed to coax the settings into, if you clicked on it, you could request permission to edit. I had that. 10 minutes later, I had 300 requests in my email box. Oh, my goodness. It just really, really took off. So what we did was, sorry, this is not working at the automatic level. Let's turn to the human level. I put out a call for volunteers to help, managed to wrestle the thing to the ground. And now there's a squadron of people uh, around the world who vet all these incoming data points, send them to me, and I manually add them uh, to it right now. So it's growing. Uh, it's growing steadily. And it's, uh, it's become a resource for quite a few people. What kind of ways would you say this has been instructive for people to see this collection of data showing up in their regions and outside their regions? I think one aspect is that American higher education tends to behave like a herd. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we don't like to stand out from the crowd. We, we like to see what other people are doing and follow suit. So I think this gave a lot of institutional leaders a chance to see what other campuses were doing. And you can see that imitation in the formal announcements where people literally copied other people's statements uh, down to certain key phrases, uh, everything from abundance of caution to others. Uh, and they really wanted to see what other people were doing. And that's fair. I mean, they're trying to steward uh, complicated, large organizations uh, through an extremely difficult and challenging time. Uh, and so the data we had showed everything from uh, timeline. Uh, how long would it take to transition to wholly online teaching? Mm. Uh, what do people do with spring breaks? Did yeah. they extend them? Uh, did they? How much time off did they give people? Uh, and then when they went online, what language did they use? This actually matters a great deal. Some liberal arts colleges that I was following wouldn't use the phrase online or digital. They simply said alternative methods of instruction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that mattered to them. Uh, so yeah, there's more and more data. But the other thing is that if you look at the spread of it, it's very interesting. I mean, in the U.S., as of our conversation, there are basically three clusters of uh, the pandemic spread. One is New York, one is Seattle, one is the Bay Area in San Francisco. Uh, that is not where the majority of closures are. The closures are happening all over the place, in the Midwest, in the Southeast, uh, up and down other parts of California and the Northeast. It's it's very interesting. And I would like someone to actually map that out and see if we can trace the uh, geography of the development. Well, what's fascinating about that is that there's a conversation out there around trying to get ahead of it. And for those that are not in the thick of it in in terms of the primary areas in the country, they're now in the position to say, all right, let's maybe be more proactive in an area where we will might be better off a month, two months, six months from now because we did take this action right now versus waiting for it to be bad like those those areas that are in, in worst cases right now. I agree. And I hope that's the case um, in many areas. But we also have to remember that uh, higher education is uh, very travel-oriented. Uh, so where most students tend to attend college and universities very close to their homes, but there are still quite a few uh, students as well as faculty and staff who travel extensively. So if you have a uh, a local, locally serving uh, college in Appalachia, it may be that one of the faculty members has just returned from a trip to Italy, or there's a, a staff member who just visited family in Seattle. And, and so you have to be very careful. That. And, and added to this is the, is one of the great debacles of our time. And I, 
I, I hesitate to offer predictions, but I, I really would like to say, I think down the road, we will see criminal cases pursued about this, uh, the failure of testing in the U.S., um, yeah. which cost us a month. Uh, and I think that is literally criminal. If you're in that school in Appalachia or in Iowa or in Nevada, and you can't get testing in a reliable way, that's when that abundance of caution really kicks in. You know, a lot of the people listening to this podcast sort of are living in uh, having to make decisions right now in their leadership teams around some big questions. You know, the domain of technology, enrollment, and how that is going to impact financials. And as we were preparing for this, it became obvious that one of the things the people that are listening to this are doing all the time now is how do we prepare for scenarios? So I want to, what I want to dig into with you is uh, what you've been living for years is looking at data, you know, first defining an issue, looking at data, getting some sense of where you have certainty and uncertainty, and then developing scenarios. And then ultimately how people execute on that is the bigger question. Give us a, a high-level context of the ways that you find yourself doing scenarios and how you'd like to encourage those to pursue scenario planning at a high level initially. Well, there are a lot of ways to do this. And one is to decide either if a unit is going to create scenarios themselves or they're going to import scenarios from somewhere else. And once you have that decision, then you have to figure out, we have to set up a way for people to work through it. And working through scenarios does take time. It's not something you can just plug and play and, and do in a second. You have to give people time to inhabit the space of a scenario. So if one of the most popular scenarios I've ever created is one I call a healthcare nation, where we uh, see the emergence of the healthcare sector as the dominant part of the American economy. And you have to let it allow time for different parts of a campus to imagine what it's like to be there. So you have to think about, say, the library. You know, do they have to expand their medical holdings? You have to think about different faculty. Uh, do they have to expand? You know, how do they expand pre-med programs and allied health programs? You have to build the, you know, alumni services, marketing. I mean, it's and then take time for this, and then imagine how the society plays out. Isn't that one of the inherent problems we have right now? Is that people don't feel like they have time, right? So to do this well, you need to be able to look at all the variables and and make decisions about what are the possible three or four scenarios. But I would imagine right now that one of the things that people are dominated by is we have to make a decision about something and we don't have the time to do that kind of robust scenario analysis. So what do you say to people who are dominated by we have to make a decision yesterday about a tough issue that's going to affect enrollment or technology? Well, and can I can I add an addendum to that question? Because I think this is this is a, a really important piece. The people that I'm hearing from are people who don't know today what resources they have to be able to latch on to to even help them ask that question. Right. Their continuity, continuity of operations plans are not widely publicized enough. Uh, like they're they just don't even know where to begin to ask those questions. Like how, what resources? How do you t attack that? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a point of intellectual suffering. So <laughs> it's it Intellectual suffering leading to uh, uh, pragmatic challenges. Right. Uh, to answer uh, uh, your first question, Howard, I, I think one of the key things is to uh, realize that the planning process uh, requires requires time, and I think everybody knows this, uh, and it has to be done in a way that lets us take this seriously. And if we're not devoting time to thinking through this seriously, we shouldn't be doing it at all. I believe, first of all, scenario planning is something that any organization should be accustomed to doing. Uh, 
something that's part of your regular practice. But the second thing is that we have to also be looking ahead and seeing what we can learn from this that applies down the road. I mean, if you look, for example, at how East Asia has handled uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the reasons they're doing relatively well is because they already had to handle SARS, and they had a lot of lessons learned. Same with, same with Canada. The U.S. was more or less spared SARS and uh, didn't take that really seriously, so it's a bit more of a shock for us. So think about the next shock that hits higher education. It could be a recession in 2025, it could be the demographic crisis of 2026, and so on. Uh, so I think getting used to scenario planning now is very, very important for down the road. To your question about, about information, this is absolutely a challenge. This is absolutely a problem. And there are a lot of ways to, to help with this. I mean, one is that the act of scenario planning leads us to think about questions of information that we're not asking right now. Right. So if you imagine, for example, that the pandemic is uh, roaring at full pace through January of 2021, then you have to think, ask about, all right, so what does this mean for returning students? And I mean, all right, well, then there's an interesting question is, will students want to physically return to a campus or will continue to go online? Which means we have to ask questions about digital preservation from the spring and summer 2020 terms. Ah, that's stuff we need to know about. So again, that pushes you to ask more questions now, which is bigger productive. On top of that, there's this human tendency in crisis to hunker down, you know, to, to you know, go to the mattresses, to... to be by ourselves and, and not to move. And that, there's a lot to that. There's a lot of reasons behind that. But I think a key thing we can do with our technology is that we can use it to collaborate and share information. I mean, the spreadsheet I mentioned is a good example of this, but to compare notes, to learn from each other, and to build resources. I mean, there are a lot of good resources out there right now about how to quickly get faculty up to speed with everything from Zoom to an LMS to how best to engage students in a time of pandemic. So I, I think right now that kind of inter-institutional, intersectoral collaboration is something that we can use the technology to really benefit our decision-making and to have the kind of pragmatic positive effects we want to have. And when I step back and say, why why is this something important to do well? What really comes to mind is that scenario planning gives us the place to ground ourselves and feel in control. And then ultimately, by involving others in this, it allows them to feel more connected to, okay, we can get through this. Right now, I think what can come up so easily for folks is the fear of what if uh, the worst case scenario plays out. But I've discovered that when people do dive into the worst case scenario and they see that they could have an, a plan, then they can say, all right, let's focus on the likely case. So front and center one you just mentioned is enrollment. One of the most recent questions out there is visits. Are we going to have substantially lower visits to our campus or are we going to find ourselves still uh, people visiting? And we've come up with different ways of doing it. Another aspect of this is yield, low yield, high yield. Oh, yes. So you look at yield and you look at visits and you could create four scenarios for those four elements, low yield, low visits. What does that produce in terms of outcomes? Even though we're getting through the next week and trying to get people home and working online and all that, the big one around scenario planning, I think that's going to start emerging is what does the fall look like? and how we help them through that conversation. So talk a little bit about that element, which I think is going to be an important thing that schools do well, like you said, that we plan well. So if you were approaching 
an enrollment, uh, and ultimately this leads to dollars. What kind of revenue will mm-hmm. we be seeing as a result of the enrollment we're going to see in the fall? How would you approach that if you were a school? I've been building up scenarios and haven't really uh, shared them publicly yet. Uh, so this is the the first time. So I'd love to hear your feedback. So please uh, be gentle. Um, I, I, I think I think first of all we have to establish the possibilities of pandemic. Uh, that shapes everything. And I, I just want to put three possible scenarios for how this could play out. And again, I believe in evidence based futuring. So this is based on everything we've been seeing uh, from the epidemiology to uh, the political responses. The first scenario is that we have a short-term outbreak. Uh, So this is following, say, the uh, China case, uh, whereby, let's call it early May, maybe mid-May, COVID-19 more or less eats its way through the American population and then burns out. And that's the end of it. And we never really hear from it again. Perhaps in the winter, we have a minor strain of it, and it just follows the flu patterns, basically. It impacts people who are at risk. And doctors will say, make sure you take your extra COVID shot while you get your flu shot. So that's the first scenario. Uh, the second is that, uh, in a more extreme one, is that COVID is very uh, durable. Uh, and we are not successful at either containing or mitigating it. And that it roars through our population uh, into spring of 2021. Now, there are a lot of reasons why this can happen, Um, everything having to do with the open society of the U.S. uh, You know, we're not capable of doing the kind of total lockdown that we see in uh, Hubei province in China. Um, Also having to do with the strength of the uh, virus, having to do with perhaps not getting a vaccine ready in time. And of course, we have no treatment for it. And then in between these two is a possibility based on the patterns that we've seen from some other diseases, notably the Spanish flu in 1918, which is that uh, COVID comes and goes. It comes back and it goes in waves. So perhaps we see it uh, right now, and again, it ends in early May. And then it comes back in the fall or in December, uh, and it's the same pace again. So these three different scenarios, you know, the, you know, the, the, the short-lived pandemic, the, the full-bore pandemic, or the one in waves, each of these shapes how we respond in higher education. So, for example, if, it goes, if we have the first scenario that we're done in May, in that case, then we could start planning on having students entering campuses face-to-face in August and September. In which case, we have all kinds of planning to do for that, including reassurance that it's all okay and everything else. So that's one I want to come back to. The second is if the pandemic just keeps going, then basically higher education stays on the online footing right. for the near future. Right. Uh, so we have to start thinking about graduation online in 2021. We have to start thinking about the possibility of maybe returning to face-to-face classes in the fall of 2021. And then this has a completely different impact on enrollment. And the third is if we have, uh, if we have COVID coming and going in waves, then we have to decide do we want to just shut down physical campuses in effect and stay online? Or do we want to allow for the possibility of coming back to campus and then having to leave campus depending on how it plays out? In the first scenario, uh, enrollment is the easiest one in some ways of the three. Um, still, there are challenges. There's the challenge that we have a possible drop in students because in the spring of 2020, right now, uh, they're not making campus visits. Uh, we also have the likelihood that international student numbers will continue to decline. 
Uh, and that hits institutions unevenly, but that's that's a major deal. Uh, if we stay online, uh, second scenario, then we basically have to uh, recommit enrollment management to the entire wholly online life, which means we have to divert more resources to not just instruction online, which is crucial, but also to the sense of building community online uh, outside of that. So do we do things like a, do you expand an esports league? Uh, do you uh, head to Facebook if your campus uses Facebook and do video streaming? So you have movie nights every Wednesday night um, and inviting people to watch a movie together on Facebook, you know, et cetera. How do, you, how do Greek life organizations try to keep going this way? Uh, do you set up meetings with alumni in different cities to try, you know, again, I, I would look to Georgia Tech, uh, which built their very, very interesting uh, online master's program in computer science. And they found that they were able to provide a pretty good sense of community, even though they had a distributed and tolerable online uh, organization. And if we're in ways, we have to figure out how to throw the switch back and forth on campus, on campus. Uh, these reach three very, very different uh, possibilities. You know, when I watch people engage in ambiguous questions, one of the pitfalls is they look at these three and they want to jump to let's pick one or let's let's jump to a decision as opposed to being willing to live in the question that all three of these uh, are possible and we need to actually be working towards uh, having solutions for all three, but as things change, be able to pivot. Your point about May is there's no way to know that it's not going to come back and be one of those recurring ones, even if May shows positive. So we got to be willing to to make decisions at the same time, not jump to this is the one that it's going to be. And 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 my experience with with teams is that. The, the thing that they are most uncomfortable with and want to get away from is ambiguity. Living living in all three of those situations at once. I don't know if we can avoid, if we're serious about being good leaders, there's no way to avoid that we need to be teaching our people how to be willing to make decisions in the face of it could change tomorrow. Right. I agree. You have to be that nimble and you have to also be that well-informed and and this this is another another way that we have to think about the role of higher education. And I'm I'm not hearing people talk about this very much, but there are a lot of people in higher education who are either researching vaccines or they're doing tests. Stanford uh, University of Washington they're doing testing for COVID nineteen. The medical centers are stepping into this now, and they have to. Yeah. they absolutely have to. Uh, and then you know we see as well people doing public intellectual work of sharing information. Uh, either through you know Twitter or through media interviews or through podcasts, uh, and I think that's that's a, a terrific terrific job. And then we're seeing libraries do things like creating lib guides uh, so people could learn more about this. I would I, I really really encourage you know higher education institutions to follow that and support faculty and staff who are doing that. I mean, it's a cliche to talk about learning organizations, but we really need to be able to do that. Uh, and when it comes to multiple scenarios, I, I think the problem is we're in a VUCA world. We're in a moment of great uncertainty. We have to be poised to make those choices. And I think once a team is aware of these possibilities and what drives them, uh, what the decision points are, I think then the, ter- the team can be informed when they look out in the world and look for evidence pointing in one of these directions. And that they can, uh, uh, they can make good cases for where they're headed. Seems to be the worst thing to do right now when I think about scenario planning and some of the pitfalls is that people look at their options and they say, let's wait and see 
let's wait to see what happens, right? That that it, instead of picking a path ultimately after saying, all right, let's look at all of these. And now, now that we're informed, we're going to keep paying attention that we're, they're already making this. I mean, they made short-term decisions. The schools are letting their students out early. Some are not coming back and there, many of them are not coming back in the, um, in the spring and are going to be doing online. And in the meantime, you know, I've talked to leaders who are anticipating, and this is what's fascinating about your timeline is that some are thinking that maybe even starting in the next two weeks, they can begin to have a different kind of conversation about, um, all right, we've made some of those tough decisions. Let's now get back to work. And I think that part of the getting back to work is going to mean keeping these conversations around scenarios evolving front and center. Uh, and that's not a that's not a habit that teams are in. They're used to doing a little bit of brainstorming and then focusing on solving everything and just you know digging into the weeds. So so I think we're in a position to have to train teams and remind teams that this is going to be the new normal. Yes, looking at scenarios and making pivots based on new information. This is going to cut into a few different micropolitical challenges and problems. Uh, I just want to surface a few of these right now. Good. I mean, one of them is the question of, of governance uh, within an institution and to what extent do faculty feel uh, railroaded or overrun uh, when they are forced online. And in many ways, they are. They're compelled to be online, even the ones that don't want to be teaching online. That's right. So do they, you know, Will they resent this? I mean, how is this done? And so that's one one challenge that we we have to bear in mind. The second though is is the fact that we you know for the past thirty years we've been incrementally, gradually, semester by semester, moving more and more instruction online. The total number of of uh, distance learning students keeps growing, but we it hasn't we haven't flipped the switch yet. It's still more you know. We more students take classes face to face and or hybrid than they do take it wholly online. Now we're about to flip that over, and there's a lot of faculty resistance and staff resistance as well. And I, I just want to identify two different bodies of that because this is going to be argued about throughout. One body is the long, long running uh, sense that uh, online education is bad, uh, it's poor education, and that we shouldn't do it. You know, the cliche is associated with older people, and I think there's some truth to that, but I think you'll see a, a wide range of faculty doing that. I think more in the humanities than in other fields, but uh, there's the sense that uh, either the the digital environment is not sensitive enough to do the kind of high-touch uh, pedagogy that we like to see in the face-to-face -face classroom, uh, or that it's too cold and unfeeling, uh, unemotional. Uh, or that it's just not suited for a particular discipline, such as, say, art, uh, art performance. Um, then the the second body is a newer body of criticism, and and this is I, I would date this back about three years, and this is the this is one that that focuses on questions of uh, justice, equity, and politics, and these are the ones who will be very critical of say. Um, a campus gathering data on students uh, moving online or uh, using a third-party vendor to uh, to do that kind of work with data. Uh, this is a population that will be very critical of inequity of access. So 
You know, it's one thing to have a, a wealthy student uh, going home and whipping out their broadband right. and their right. VR headset versus a student who has no computer at home uh, or lives in uh, an area with poor broadband. And then uh, there's also the sense that, uh, and I've heard this from several different critics, that uh, this is going to be a commercial bonanza. And in fact, maybe this is driven by commercial interests. Uh, I think we have all gotten emails from multiple companies. For me, it's been uh, airlines and tech companies saying, you know, hi, we're still here. We're trying to serve you in the case of the pandemic. And personally, I don't mind these. I, I kind of expect them. Um, but others have said that, you know, this is being used as a case of what Dominic Klein calls disaster capitalism, uh, you know, using the disaster to make a lot of money in a hurry. Uh, I don't uh, hold with either of these two schools of thought myself. But I think they're out there, and those arguments will be made, and every institution may have to confront these kind of discussions. Uh, and we've already seen one case study where they did uh, make a decisive impact, which is Berea College in Kentucky, which decided not to go online. They yeah. simply ended the semester in the academic year hmm. uh, because they, could, they felt that they could not guarantee access to their students. Berea is a very, very special place. It's a wonderful, wonderful institution. Uh, a lot of their students are from rural Appalachia, uh, and they uh, either uh, lack decent broadband or they lack the hardware at home in order to access uh, the technology. And so their their push was to say, well, if we can't guarantee this and we can't arrange it, then we're not going to do it. And mm. we're simply going to close up shop, uh, which is what they did. Question to spin off of that, Brian, and it, it's for for both of you. I think that the last time you were here, we were talking about the Queen sacrifice, and yes, uh, I wonder what like what connections you're seeing if we're looking at these many horizons. Uh, it sounds to me like what you're saying is we're entering an environment in which it's going to be much easier for the academic and political forces to make easy, quick decisions about the kinds of programs they're not going to be able to offer. Isn't that sort of a queen sacrifice, too, uh, where now this COVID-19 has created an environment where we can just say the we're not going to take the arts. We're not going to take the things that are hard to do online. We're going to have to just cleave those off because they're they're impossible to do. I think that is going to happen, and it may be worse than you say. Um, if I go back to my scenarios, one of the problems that we have to cope with is that uh, we're we're looking at at least one economic quarter of recession, perhaps more. And one of the side effects of that is that state governments will suffer a drop in revenue which means when they turn around to the next economic cycle or the next budgeting cycle, they will definitely spend less money on higher education. That's a guarantee. Uh, that's, that's their established yeah. tendency, red state, blue state. Um, and, and so public universities and colleges, which is what, about 60% of higher ed, uh, are going to suffer that budget hit uh, within a yes, year. Yes. Uh, the second problem is if we see at least one quarter of recession, we're going to see uh, families, generally speaking, uh, wanting to kind of downshift uh, the uh, expenses they'll make in sending family members to college university. So they'll go for a less expensive uh, option, depending on, on what the actual uh, fee is after discounting. Well, at a minimum, it sure makes a gap year look uh, pretty appealing. Uh, it does, especially if it doesn't involve traveling to other human beings. Right. Um, but I, I, I think, so 
And there will be other economic pressures as well uh, if we think about uh, the possibility that states and families will have to also divert more money to other needs, uh, such as, you know, um, you think about state governments having to do emergency funds uh, for everything from having to pay lots and lots of workers over time for lots and lots of cleaning to perhaps building up uh, new hospitals. Uh, So when all this hits, I think we will see multiple queen sacrifices across the nation as campus after campus is going to look very, very hard at that program in German language or that mm-hmm. program in uh, math education. And the ones that are just not enrolling a lot of students, I think they will be fairly ruthless in this respect. The idea that every institution should be like Harvard and try and maintain a full curriculum, uh, I think is going to drop away pretty fast. Now, that's if we have one quarter of recession. That's the mild scenario. If we have instead a full year of recession, um, or I mean, that's the we have to think that far ahead. So if you, if you put these again, Howard, to go back to your question of why should we devote time to this? Imagine being a department chair right now, thinking through these possibilities. And one of the things you're going to have to do now, which may seem kind of perverse, is going to have to beat the bushes to increase enrollment for your department. So you may think now about curricular changes. You may think about marketing. And then how to market yourself to students who are entirely online. That's right. Who can't necessarily come by your office face-to-face and be impressed by you. That's a great point. I mean, because right now I would imagine that these uh, deans uh, have really focused on how they're going to transition their existing population and serve that group. But you're, you're pointing at... The, the need to start thinking about how are we going to appeal to the next cohort coming in that may um, have a whole different set of needs and we may no longer be offering the kind of curriculum that we have been doing uh, face-to-face and we need we need to find a way to sell that and market it in a way that really shows that, that we can offer something unique. Because ultimately, if you think about what scenario planning can provoke, is it can provoke a certain kind of mood. Mm. In my work around mood, what I'm really discovering is at the heart of it that there are certain moods that are productive and there are certain moods that are unproductive. And my, my concern is that we need to find a way to keep people not falling into unproductive moods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you speak with data and you speak with intention, but the listener can hear this and it's very easy for people to fall into being overwhelmed and then fall into making decisions out of fear. So I think what we have to do now more than ever is make sure that we're orienting ourselves and our teams to be in moods that behind us is we're going to get through this. But at the same time, we're not going to not have the tough conversations. And this is something that that is, a, I think, a, a challenge and a need for leaders today is to be willing to have the tough conversations at the same time, help their teams maintain productive moods. And I think if we can do those two things, we're going to learn a certain kind of resiliency that that we may need to be front and center with for the foreseeable future. Yes. Interesting comment on that, too, is the not just leadership, but when you talk about, you know, the impact on enrollment, uh, speaking as a dad of somebody who has been accepted to a college and was planning to go in the fall, is planning to go attend this college in the fall. Mm. 
how institutions plan on communicating to keep the mood of interest yeah. up in prospective students, yeah. uh, to keep them yes. fascinated and engaged and ready to make this transition, no matter how they do this, I think will be uh, equally determinative of, you know, what that, that fall looks like. And I haven't seen that language yet. Well, in fact, no. uh, one of the things that I'm anticipating is seeing a lot of stories about how difficult the transition is and how bad the transition is. And, uh, you know, I've actually inadvertently shared a few of those stories myself, not about my teaching, but uh, I've, I've had a couple of horrendous uh, video conference experiences over the past week with, um, not to name names, except Blackboard Illuminate and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Crowdcast. But, uh, uh, but you know, part, of the, part of the problem is that, you know, our, our multiple levels of infrastructure are being hit harder than usual. Yes. Uh, and, yes. Uh, you know, that's... Uh, uh, that can be difficult to manage, and and we we should be sympathetic to that. But I, I think people are gonna they're gonna be ready True. for bad stories about um, a student have not being called on in Zoom because the prof couldn't figure out how to identify them. To uh, you know, and it, but I think we are equally gonna be ready for seeing how they can orient themselves uh, to getting through this. And, and and I think there is you know when I walk around, I went to I was out yesterday. I had to go to a pharmacy and. I really see that people want to find ways to connect and they want to find ways that yes. they can get through this with others. And I think maybe at the heart of what we're at the leading edge around is what does it mean to rethink community? Mm. What is community? Right. That lives in our neighborhoods, that lives in our homes, that lives in our school. Somebody said to me, this is a this is maybe the wake-up call we needed. Uh, to start coming together at, in communities. So I'm going to ask you a question um, to wrap up this, uh, and you're probably anticipating where I'm going. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic that uh, this crisis could see uh, a bigger embrace of science um, worldwide. Um, I, I think this this may be bad news for mm. Gwyneth Paltrow. This may be bad news for uh, Alex Jones, um, and it may be good news for um, people paying attention to biology, health sciences, uh, and evidence. Um, that's that's one thing I'm optimistic about. The uh, second is is that I think this is giving us a fantastic opportunity to really grow and improve our ability to teach online. Uh, and this, I mentioned before the importance of collaboration. That's happening all over the place. I mean, uh, Twitter, for example, it's it's incredible to see people exchanging lots and lots of thoughts about everything from you know where should I put my camera to what are the best ways to structure discussion prompts. Uh, it's great to see that. Um, a third is that people have been working on this since the 1980s. You can find research going that far back. So I think a lot of that research and a lot of those experts are going to be now recognized uh, for uh, the work they've been do they've been doing. Uh, and the fourth, based on the conversation with you two gentlemen, is I hope this leads to an improved, call it a strategic sensibility on campuses, uh, a greater awareness of future possibility, and uh, greater agility. Beautiful. Pete, what are you optimistic about? Well, uh, I'd like to echo what Brian said about the uh, enthusiasm around uh, teaching and learning online. Uh, we have been, uh, you know, as somebody who's been teaching online for the last 15 years, like I, I'm welcome to 
today, right? I'm very excited about uh, now that we have more resources, more intellectual resources, even people who didn't like online teaching, they're now, as they are forced to come to it, they're going to bring their energy, whatever energy that is, to figuring out new ways to do new things. Mm. I'm very excited about that. I think that that's going to lead to, uh, frankly, a great future for students yeah. as they yeah. uh, make this transition to lifelong learners, right? I mean, that is, that is I think, the connection that uh, I think in the long arc of, of future history, we will change the way we learn at a broader level because of this point. And I, I think I have a lot to be excited about for that. So, yeah, beautiful. So, Brad, I want to thank you for, for, for a couple of things. One, the work that you're doing, because I think that you're bringing a sense of, of uh, people can connect with each other this whole experience you have with the, with the Google app and you say, you know, listen, why don't I act like a Gen Xer and open this up? And next thing you know, everyone dove in. So it's a great reminder for people like me even to get out of the old mindset of saying, I got to figure this out or it's my small group of maybe we really need to open ourselves up to the larger to, to a larger population of people who want to contribute. And that to me is a, is a powerful lesson. Um, and and I think you bring you bring confidence that if you approach this in a way that's thoughtful, uh, that we can get through this together. So so thank you for the work you're doing in education. I re I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. And thank you both, uh, Pete and Howard, for the opportunity to talk with you too. It's always a stimulating event and uh, always a pleasure. Awesome. Well, we sure appreciate it. And I would just like to say, Howard, thank you for dropping Gen X or the way you did yes. as a Gen X. Yes. You made me feel like a young man. <laughs> very nice uh, thank you both this was a terrific conversation and I hope additive to your institution's journey right now uh, as ever if you want to reach out to uh, uh, either of these esteemed uh, leaders in the field uh, links are all in the show notes we invite conversation we invite participation please participate and share what you are doing what you are learning with us as well. On behalf of Brian Alexander and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Education. Mm -hmm.